Father, I just thank you, Lord, for... Um, I thank you for the truth that our victory is found uh, not in our circumstances. It is not measured even in our amount of faith, but it is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that you have been victorious over sin and death. That the cross is proof of your love for us, that your resurrection is proof of your power over death and sin that your spirit that indwells us is proof of, your, of the pledge of the inheritance that you have in store for us for all eternity. Lord, today, in the next few moments, in the time that we worship you in the word and in communion and in fellowship afterwards, Lord, we are becoming more and more like the person we will be for all eternity. So help us as your people to step into your story of redemption to step into the victory that is already ours. But let us not waste the grace of God. Lord, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your truth. Open our ears that we would hear you whisper a word behind us saying, this is the way. Walk in it. And open our hearts that we might love you and others well. In the power of the Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things together, so all of God's people say, Amen. Please have a seat. Open up your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. It is not the passage that we're in today. However, if you did your daily reading, you're like, uh-oh, I read the wrong passage. No, you didn't. We are in two, but in James chapter 3, we really get to see the heart of the letter of James. James, the half-brother of Jesus who's writing this letter to the church. And um, we have seen over the first three weeks in this letter that it is a fairly hard-hitting letter. And if we don't constantly filter what he's telling us through the truth that he's telling us in James 3, we will really struggle to live what we just sang and prayed and the victory that is ours in Christ. Because we will find ourselves going, I fell short here, James. I fell short here, James. I fell... And we have to remind ourselves that it's not about what we do, it is about who God is. So he says this in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that, it is, knowing that as such... I'm sorry, I mean, I, that's, that's two weeks from now. James chapter 3, verse 13. Let's try that. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. It's not. It says, Who among you is wise and understanding? So remember we talked about, like, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Now he's coming back to that idea, saying, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have, are, have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in, in your heart, and you, you, sorry, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So he's saying, if you're jealous, if you're ambitious, if you, have, if you're, if you are exalting yourself, you're, don't let that arrogance turn into a lie. He says this wisdom that he just described, this arrogance and bitterness and jealousy, is not which comes down from above, but it is earthly, so it's of the world, natural, and demonic of Satan. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But here's the good news. But the wisdom from above, so the wisdom of God is this, pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he's making this argument again and again in this letter about where, does, where, where do we need to keep our eyes focused? Where do we need to filter truth in? 
Because there's a difference between what is true and what is truth. But we all have filters where we see what is true in our lives, the world, what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our hearts. It's true. You can't deny, you can't just say, you're not feeling that way. Yeah, you are. The question becomes, what filter are we filtering what is true in? And, and what, what, what is really true? And it needs to be the truth of God's word. I want to demonstrate, we all have filters. Because we all have filters, and those filters come from things like um, our past experiences. Like, we cannot help but filter every interaction we have with God and with other people through the filter of just who we are. And some of who we are is from past experiences, past hurts, past failures, shame, self-condemnation, condemnation from others. Like, those are all parts of the things that work into our filter. To show you the power of a filter, um, I passed out some pieces of paper to um, four kids here. So if you're one of those four kids, stand up, please. Hold up both pieces of paper really high. Hold up both pieces of paper really high. Separated, like this, sorry. So, so people can see them. Got it? Okay, so now put down one of them. I don't care which one. Okay, so I'm going to say right now, so yellow... Yellow, white, white. Now you can now put, put that one down. Put up, you can put up the same one or a different one. Just put up, a, put up a piece of paper. Stay standing. I didn't tell you to sit down, Elijah. Sorry. <laughs> yellow, yellow, white, white. Now look at the power of a filter. So I brought my little filter up here. Gotta love Amazon. Okay, so now put those down. Put up whichever color paper you want to put up. Now I got a 50-50 shot, right? Yellow. Yellow, yellow, yellow. Okay, put them down. You can put up the same one or a different one. We'll try it again. Look at, he's trying to trick me. Nice, nice, Jack. That's horrible. He's like, eh. Yellow. I'm going to say white, but it could be yellow. Yellow, yellow. How did I do? Not really well. So do you see, you guys sit down. Thank you guys very much. Do you see, but, but this is kind of a, a silly example, but, but those, that is how powerful what we filter true. It didn't change what was true. What was true is the paper is yellow or the paper is white. But my, tr it, my filter changed what I saw as the truth. And we do that all the time. And what, and, and what James is going to tell us today is that our filters are massively powerful and generally sinful, right? So the, so the topic of today's, or the, of today's um, message is don't let your prejudice or your pride lead to prejudice. Don't let your pride lead to prejudice. And prejudice is just how we make judgments on things without any real reason or proof because we have the wrong filter. The question, so, so, so let me just get real with the question today. How does your view of God and your view of yourself color how you view others? And I picked those words very carefully. How does the, because this is not, like prejudice is not a race issue. It, it is a race issue, but it's a whole lot more than that that we are prejudiced against. So how does your view of God and your view of yourself color how you view other people? Let me just get, let me just bring it right down to reality for all of us right now, especially after Tuesday. Jesus wants Nancy Pelosi saved. Do you? That's the question, right? Do we look at 
people we don't agree with and go, they deserve hell. Guess what? They might. Guess what? So do you. So do I. Right? That's the deal. So as we look at today's question, James is going to help us answer this question through the, and he even actually sort of asks it, of how does our view of God and our view of self filter or color everything, how we view other people. And he's going to start with saying, because you can start to create classes of people. So go to our passage today, which is James 2. I'm actually going to start in chapter 1 of 25. So I'm going to pick it up in 125 and just, because in, you got to remember, James wrote this as a letter to the church. There was no chapter 2 to James. So his thought at the end of chapter 1, what we call chapter 1, just flows right into chapter 2. So we've got to always filter the word through those, that, that idea. Like we don't go, oh, now here's a new thought, James. So look at James 1.25. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. He's blessed in what he does because obedience is where Jesus is found, and Jesus' presence is the blessing. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion or worship, we talked about, is worthless. But pure and undefiled religion or worship in the sight of God is this. Visit orphans and widows and in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the word. Interesting that we'll kind of jump on, if we're doers, like even um, as Taylor and Farron were talking, like he was, he was confessing that he's a real doer. Like we'll, we'll, we'll go, yeah, I, I'm a doer, so I'm feeling good about my worship to God because I'm serving widows and orphans or I'm serving in Costa Rica, which is a wonderful thing. He's not saying, he's obviously telling us do that, but we, also, we often forget the last part of that and keep oneself unstained by the world. Oh, I don't want to deal with that part. Right? I don't want to mess with that. Now, pick it up in this idea of we create classes of people. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into an assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and say, come sit here in the good place. And you say to the poor man, you go stand over there. Or, I'll, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? He's saying, he starts out with, do not hold your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of favoritism. That's one of, do not hold. That's one of those imperatives. It's a command. Remember I said there were 60 imperatives in, the, in this little letter? This is one of his commands. He's saying, do it. Don't doubt it. Don't question whether I have the right to, to, to practice favoritism, he's saying just don't do it. Why? Because I'm so glorious? Because you're so glorious? Because they're so glorious? No, because he's so glorious. He's like, don't do it because, of your, because your, your, your faith is in a glorious Lord who doesn't show partiality towards others, so you shouldn't either. Guys, what did you do to get Jesus to love you? What did you do to get God to grace you? The answer to that question is absolutely nothing. So why do we demand that other people do for us? And guys, when I say this, I'm preaching to me. These, I don't know whose idea it was to teach through James, but I'm really getting tired of it, and we're only four weeks into the 15 weeks. Because it's just chewing my lungs. I mean, it's just eating me up. Like, just chewing me up. And, because I'm so guilty of this. But guys... We expect others to meet our expectations in order to demonstrate, in order to show them love and respect. We hold people to a standard that God does not hold us to. 
and we do it all the time. Guys, he's using poor and rich because in their, in their culture, there was no middle class when James was writing this. There were poor people and rich people, and so that was a, that was a dichotomy of people groups that they would understand. But, but it could be all kinds of groups. His point, though, is in verse 4. He says, if, if you do this, whether it's rich or poor, black or white, or who, Jew or Gentile, don't you prove that you are judges with evil motives? And right there is his point. The New Living translates it this way. Doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Guys, we need to be discriminating as Christians. Here's what I mean by that. We need to, what place does light have with darkness, Paul tells us. We need to be, this is not a license to go dabble in evil because you're not, you're, you don't want to judge those people, so I'm going to go do what they do because otherwise I'm judging them. That's not what James is saying here, i.e., the end of chapter 1, and make sure you are unstained by the world. What he's saying is, don't be discriminatory. Don't put people out because you have made some kind of predetermined um, prejudicial statement in your own heart against them. So here's, to, here's the table talk question. Last week we were sitting at tables. I heard a lot of positive things about the conversation that was had. I also, I also know it's not very comfortable to be sitting like that and be looking like this, and so we're not doing it very often. Wouldn't you love the chance to sit at a table right now and talk about this question? Are you a prejudiced person? They're on the back of your connecting points if you don't know. This is not a race issue. It's a human being issue. Do you have classes of human, be of human beings set up in your subconscious? Guys, do you see everyone, and this is going to unfold more as we go along, so we'll have time to, I'll let you, this, the, this question will chew on you throughout the morning, you're welcome. But here's, here's ultimately the question. Do you see every person you interact with as an image bearer of God? Every person, regardless of, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Regardless of who they are, what they do, what they look like, whatever, do you see that every human being that has ever been made has the fingerprint of God on them? That will change. Because sadly, the church has a great history of not doing this well. Right? The Crusades were a great example of the church not doing this well. The Inquisition was a great example of the church not doing this well. But it didn't end with those things. We're still not really doing this well. But again, I'll get ahead of myself if I keep going. So how does the view, your view of God and your view of yourself color how you view other people? One, you can create classes of people. The second thing is you can see yourself as better. The, the next point James is going to make, is he's right, the, the, it's just flowing right out of the point he just hit us with, is you can see yourself as better. Look at the next three verses. Verse 5. Listen, my brethren. Do not, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppressed you and personally dragged you into court? He's like, even your own logic makes no sense, is what he's saying. Your own reasons for doing what you're doing don't even make sense from a completely worldly perspective, is what he's telling them there. Then in verse 7, do they not blaspheme for their the fair name by which you have been called. And then he's like, even, even in your commitment to Christ, are you, what you're doing doesn't make any sense. Guys, but, but look at what he says in verse 5. Didn't God choose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom? Now again, don't just take wealth 
like, and we'll talk about that in a minute. This could be any class of people that, you're, that we're struggling to embrace. Didn't God choose them to be the heir of his kingdom and to be rich in faith? Guys, it's this, this, this problem that he's talking about, classes of people, is exactly what the Pharisee, in, in the invocation passage that Brian read, the Pharisee was doing with the tax collector. Man, I just thank the Lord that I'm not like that sinner. Right? He was creating a class of people. Keep your finger here in James, because obviously we're coming back. Turn to the left of where we are to 1 Corinthians. I want to let Paul give us, I'm going to let him tell us what this ought to look like in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So you're going to go to the left, you're going to go past a lot of little books, all the T's, all the Ian's. You're going to go past the big letter of 2 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians 1. If you get to Romans, you've gone too far. Okay. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 18. This is Paul talking about the same thing James is saying. So he's going to give us commentary on what James is saying. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He's saying the gospel doesn't make sense to those people that are not being enlightened by the Spirit of God. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the, the world, through its own wisdom, did not come to know God. So they're saying, the, the, you don't get to know God by getting smart in school. That doesn't mean you shouldn't study, children. God was well-pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, that's the gospel, to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So Jews, to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles a foolishness, but to those who are being called, whether they're Jews or Greeks, doesn't matter what class of people they are, we preach Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, but now get this. But consider your calling. He's speaking to us today. Consider who you are. Consider how you came to Christ, is what he's saying. That, that there were not many of you wise, according to the flesh. Not many of you mighty. Not many of you noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of this world to despise the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast, so, so that no man may boast before God. Okay, turn, so, so this is what, this is what that, that whole thing about, because, and I loved how Brian prayed it, at least, I, or maybe he just said it, I can't remember which, but it was sometime when he was up here. Okay, you're not in Christ because you're better, smarter, purer, more good looking, stronger, taller, born into the right family. None of those reasons are why. What Paul's telling you is none of that has to do with why you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ because God has enlightened the eyes of your, the spiritual eyes of your heart to see the truth of the gospel message, which is you can't do it because God is so much bigger than we are. He had to do it. So to do that, he came down here as a man that he might die a death he did not deserve that we might live his life. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's telling us. Now here's Paul, the great Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of our New Testament. Here's what he's going to tell us the gospel looks like in his life. Just turn a page or two to chapter 4. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Chapter 4, verse 11. So this is Paul now saying, hey, you want to see what, what it's like to, to live 
as a fool for Christ? To this present hour, we are hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, and roughly treated. And oh, by the way, we're homeless. Does not sound like a rich person. And we toil, working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we, sl when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Let's reconcile, mediate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even till now. Congratulations, ladies and gentlemen. That's our calling in Christ. Right? If you want to say, what's the job description of Jesus for, to, to be a follower of Christ, to, 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 to somebody who's asking you, what does it look like to be a, to be a follower of Christ, just turn to 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 13, or verse 13. We are slandered, we, write, we conciliate, we have become the scum of the world. That's what it looks like to follow Christ. When you realize you are nothing and he is everything, you are really following hard after Christ. So look at your table talk question. If you were to classify rich and poor with rich people are anybody that doesn't look like me or act like me or think like me, and poor people are, if poor people are people, I'm sorry, if, or anybody, it's the other way around. So if, if rich people are people that are like I am and poor people are people that are not like I am, do you treat both the rich and the poor the same? So in James's vernacular, it was rich and poor, but for you, it might be black or white or Hispanic or Asian or fill in that, fill in that. It could be any ethnicity. I don't really like the word race because there really is only one race. It's called the human race. There's a lot of ethnicity out there that, that is real and true, and we have great prejudice against that. But those aren't the only things that we're prejudiced against. Male and female. Gender is something we can be prejudiced against. Economic class. That's what James is talking about. Parenting style. We can be prejudiced against which leads to things like school choice, medical choices. We can be prejudiced against. Oh, how about this one as we're coming up on 2020? Political affiliation. Guys, if you get along better and, and enjoy your time with your, I know I won't use either of the parties, your political affiliation more than you do your brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me restate this. If you get along with and enjoy your time more with people that are of your own party line politically, than you do your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are getting your identity in the wrong place. If you're following Fox News more than you're following the Bible, you're getting your filter from the wrong place. And that's true of CNN and MSNBC and my Apple News feed and Google News and everything else too. Ouch. I, right here, ouch. So today's question, how does your view of God and your view of yourself color how you view others? Can, we create classes of people. We can see ourselves as better. Man, I, I, I can quickly go to, man, you know, God's just lucky to have me on, my, on his team. Like, really. Because I'm just, you know, man, I, look how small. I was a, you know, I graduated summa cum laude. I mean, come on. God, you're, man, it's a good thing you drafted me. Right? Not so much. The third thing is, you can live by the wrong law. Back in James, I don't remember where I left you, but I think it was in Corinthians, but let's go back to James. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. James 2.8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he has said, for, for he who said, do not commit adultery and do not murder, now if you do not commit adultery and you do not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Guys, here, here's what we, what we tend to do. We tend to put people in, cla in classes of sin. He's talking about two of the biggies, like we'll often do, murder and, and adultery. So he's putting people in classes. He's saying anybody that commits these has committed all, has, has committed every sin, right? Is what the, Bible's te is what the Bible teaches us. What, what he's, the reason he's pointing out the biggies is because that's what our heart tends to do. Our heart tends to go, at least I haven't committed that one. At least I'm better than they are. Like, we, we, we believe that God is a scorekeeper because, like I said last week, we're scorekeepers. And if there was some pendulum of, these are the zero score people, like they can't even get off the bench. And these are the, I just won the Super Bowl people. As long as I'm in like the top, and then, and then everybody has their different place they, they want to put the line. As long as I'm in the top half, the top 25%, maybe I need to be in the top, then God will love me because at least I'm not all those people behind me. There is no scale. There is no scale. In his book that, that many of us went through in, in some of our life groups, um, it's been a while now. Uh, it, in, at different times we've done this. Our young adults have done it. Some of our ladies groups have done it. It's by Jerry Bridges. He's gone to be with the Lord. Just a, a gracious, gifted man of God. Um, he wrote a book called Respectable Sins. I would highly recommend it. It will, it will eat your lunch because it's 20, it's 20 short chapters about all of the sins that the church so readily accepts. Because we're caught up in the biggies. Right? I'm going to just read a quote that I've, I've used before here. It's at the beginning. It's in the introduction. It says this. It's going to come up on the screen. It says, We are incensed, and rightfully so, when a major denomination ordained a practicing homosexual as a bishop. He obviously wrote this a while ago because that's, that's pretty common now, sadly. Why do we not also mourn over our selfishness, our critical spirit, our impatience, and our anger? It is easy to let ourselves off the hook by saying those sins are not as bad as the flagrant ones of society. But God has not given us the authority to establish values for different sins, and he does not intend to. But we do that. We, we, we create this, this idea that, that, I can, that I can keep people in a class and, and then make myself feel better because I'm expecting them to follow some law book that is mine. And yet what... Paul, what, what he's telling us is that's not the way we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to follow, the, as men who follow, men and women who follow the royal law. Well, what is the royal law? What is the royal law? He quotes part of it right here, doesn't he? It's the law of our king. It's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Keep your finger in James. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. So Matthew is the first book in your, God, in your um, New Testament. So you're going to go, if you get to some names you don't recognize, it's probably in your Old Testament, so go backwards. I'm going to pick it up in verse 34. I'm going I'm to read part of the passage that, that Jesus' brother, James, quotes. So he wasn't here probably when his brother said it, but he had heard his brother say it at some other time. And he says, in, in chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 34, he says, But when the Pharisees, so here are those Pharisees again, the righteous. Remember, they're that group of people that are righteous, pious. They believe that they're just better than everybody else because of their religiosity. It says, 
But when the Pharisee heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which was another group kind of like them, they gathered themselves together. And one, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. It actually says, it actually means. So they're trying to trap Jesus. And they say, teacher, which is the commandment? Which is the great commandment of the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. And the, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, neighbor does not mean next door neighbor. We learn from even the, the I mean, it could mean that, but, but we learn from the parable of the Good Samaritan that a neighbor is anybody God throws in your path, including the person who cuts you off on the freeway. We'll come back to that. Then he says, that, but this one, he says, on this, on these two things, love God, love people, depend the whole law and the prophets. He's saying all of God's law, the royal law, is these two things. Love God, love people. Now get this. This is what just hit me so hard when I was reading this passage. You're going to read it as a daily reading this week. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus turns the tables. He, asks them, he says, let me ask you a question. What do you say about the Christ? Whose son is he? Guys, that is just another way of asking the question of life. When he turns to his disciples and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah and some say a prophet and some say Moses. And he's like, yeah, but who do you say that I am? See, we can't do the great commandment. We can't fulfill the royal law unless we have the right answer to that question. What do you say about the Christ? So what do you say? What do you say about the Christ? Guys, if we don't have that, we can't get that answer right if we don't have the right answer about who we are. Right? He cannot be Lord of all of my life if I think all I need is a little bit of his help because I'm pretty good, because I'm a little further down the scale of goodness than those people. That, that's, then, I'm, then I have the wrong answer about what do I say about the Christ. But if we have the right answer about what do you say about the Christ, Whose son is he? He is the son of the living God. He is the almighty. He is the alpha and the omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. If you have that answer, and that drives you to actually getting on your face before the Lord and going, all that I have and all that I am is yours. We're finally moving in the right direction. I'm finally moving in the right direction. Guys, anytime we say this in our heads, but at least I'm better than those people. Whatever class of those people that you've, you've made, rich, poor, black, whatever it is, because anytime we say that, we are sinning. And we can say it without ever, you'd be like, yeah, but I would never say that. I, I, I've never said that. You say it all the time. Every time, you won't let somebody in ahead of you on the, in the, on the freeway. What are you saying? I am more important than you are how I will not let you in. Seems like a little thing, doesn't it? It is a, the act is a little thing. The heart behind it is a big deal. Anytime you say, I deserve preferential treatment over these people, who it could just be the person standing next to you at the time, your neighbor. I, what I need, my time, my schedule, my whatever, is more important than them. Guys, we are being prejudiced because we have the wrong view of ourselves and we have the wrong view of God. I cannot imagine Jesus driving down the freeway and not letting someone cut in. I just can't. He'd be like, yeah, come on. But he'd probably never get anywhere on time. He'd be like, come on. 
Yeah, come on, come on, come on. It, table talk questions. Can you honestly say that you love others unconditionally just as God loves you? Because guys, that's got be, to be our heart behind it. That's why, that's why I keep saying our sin issues all flow from two things. Our view of God and our view of ourselves. And if we see God as less holy than he is, and we do, all of us struggle with that. Because for one thing, we can't possibly see him in all of his holiness. But if we don't even, if we don't even try to get there by being in his word and being with God's people and being full of his spirit, then, then we're diminishing his glory and we are putting ourselves on his throne. Because we are absolutely not loving others unconditionally. Because what we're doing is we're saying, well, you know what? I, the condition for which God loves me is I'm better than those people. And that's just not Jesus. So how does your view of God and your view of, of, other, of yourself color or how does your view of God and your view of yourself color how you view other people? I'm going to read the last couple of verses of our passage, and we're going to start to go into our time of response here in just a minute. It says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what James is telling us. When you get a right, to put it in the positive now, when you get a right view of God and a right view of yourself, that's when you will see that you have been set free. That's what James is telling us. You will, if, if, if you will stop, he's, he, spent all, he spent these verses that we've been in from the start of chapter 2, through verse 11, he's saying, this is what it looks like to think you're better than other people. But if you'll get this, verses 12 and 13, then you'll finally realize that you've been set free and how you've been set free. Look at what he says in verse 12. So speak and act as those who live in the law that gives freedom is really what that, when he says liberty there, is really what it says. To live in the law that gives freedom. Now, th does that not sound a little bit like um, um, a contradiction? How can the law give freedom? How can the law, which is a list of rules, give freedom? I'm glad you asked. Because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says this, For through the law I died so that I might live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. In this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then he says the key, I do not nullify the grace of God. In other words, he's saying, I don't, I don't slap Jesus on the cross in his face by feeling like I can do it in my own strength. By feeling like somehow I earned that sacrifice. I don't nullify the grace of God because if righteousness could come through the law, through, keep, through doing good things, through being better than those people back there, then Christ, then God hung his son on a cross for nothing. That's what Paul is telling us here. Guys, the same law that shows us the holiness of God also shows us we can't meet it, but also tells us he did for us. 
Man, that was from the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to say that again because that's not in my notes. The same law that shows us the holiness of God, shows us we can't meet it, and shows us that Christ did for us. That's the key. That's the key to everything James is going to tell us, not just today, but throughout these 15 things that he's telling us, this is what faith looks like. Because as the music team comes up and we turn down the lights and, and we start to respond to what we've heard, I want to ask you, he says, so speak and act. That's another imperative. He's saying, he's commanding you. He's commanding me. Live as freed men and women. Are you? Are you living like you've been set free? Because it is for freedom that Christ set us free. So don't go back to that, the, the bondage of sin. Now, how do we go back to the bondage of sin? Again, I'm glad you asked. Every time we put expectations on ourselves or other people, we are, we are chaining ourselves back up to sin, to bondage. Every time we fear what's going to happen in the future, we are chaining ourselves to the bondage of sin again. Every time we are performance-oriented from a heart that isn't because Christ did, I will do. But it's I will do because I hope Christ will do for me. Every time we do that, we are chaining ourselves back up to bondage. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. It is for freedom that he went, for your freedom, for my freedom. That's why he came here. That's why he died here. Guys, look at verse 13. He says, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How do we know? Because the cross proves it. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. What does that mean? That means that sin entered the world through our rebellion. That means we, all of us, every person who's ever lived, has, has not just been infected by that rebellion, but has partnered in it willingly. That means that a holy God can't, like, just like a good parent, and he's the perfect parent, he can't let his kids do that and just turn his back. What do we think of parents that do that? What do we think of a judge that lets a guilty person go just because? Just because he's just, yeah, but if God is love, why would he, why, what's with judgment? Here's what's with judgment. It's, it's we, we want it. We want it on everybody but us. When Carrie and I aren't getting along, and I'm sorry guys, we're going. I, when, when Carrie and I aren't getting along, I want God to get her, fix her. Can, just convict the snot out of her. I'm mowing my lawn. How dare she? Why? Because I have a wrong view of him. I have a wrong view of me because I'm just better than her. Fortunately, I have a Holy Spirit living inside of me who when I'm out there being a two-year-old, He's like, you stink. Like, like, seriously, when are you going to grow up? And when are you just going to remember that, man, I love you and all your stinkiness? You stink. 
and I make you smell sweet. So get back in there with your sweet-smelling wife and make up with her. Guys, mercy triumphs over judgment. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus erased it. He leveled the playing field. You don't got to keep climbing up that mountain. He's done it for you. Instead of trying to climb up to meet some kind of expectation, just lay down. Just lay down before the Lord and say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Isn't that what the tax collector said? Jesus said, and I tell you that this man was justified before God. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you for that truth. I thank you for the truth that we don't have to keep striving. That even in a letter written by your brother that tells us all about how we're to live, it is only by grace. The same grace that saved us is the grace that empowers us. The same gospel good news that brought us to life in Christ is the, is the gospel good news that lets us live in Christ. But grace is your most precious commodity because it cost you the life of your son. And I'm sorry for that. But I'm so joyful in that. And Lord, because it, because it is the thing that you hold most dear, your grace, you lavish it upon us most generously when we give it away. There are people in this room that need to step into that grace. And there's those of us in that room that need to extend that grace. So may we do so the only way we can. That's by remembering who you are, by remembering who we were, and by remembering what you call us now, sons and daughters of the living God. And in there we find our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.